Psalms 14. And this is, this is close to my heart. I'm going to emphasize this. And David behaved himself <laughs> wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reader and the listening listeners of his word this morning. Have a happy Sabbath. So what does it mean to be a good winner? Yes, it's important to be a good loser. Some of us have more practice in that than others. But what does it mean to be a good winner? You did something well. Maybe you did something very well. What does that look like? How should you behave yourself after doing something well? Good. It was June of 2008. It was the European Football Championships, and Spain were, were the victors over Germany. Spain was also the first team since Germany in 1996 to win the tournament undefeated. And how did Spain conduct themselves? I don't know. You may not be aware of this. And I wish I could show you in the back, in this bottom picture here on the right, is somebody from the German team. He's being interviewed, as often done, after a game. What went wrong? What went well? What could you have done differently? How did they beat you? And so forth. And while they're doing this, Spain essentially does some kind of a, a Congo dance behind them with their arms around each other, and they're cheering and chanting, and da 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 hey, 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 and they can't even conduct the interview as it's literally right behind them, and then they circle around, and they come back in, hey, 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 is that what it looks like to be a good winner? I don't know. Football is another game. Uh, Terry Owens, player for the 49ers, scoring a touchdown. He leaves the end zone and runs all the way to the midpoint on the field. Takes a while to run that far. The announcers are saying, where is he going? What is he doing with the ball? He goes and stands right in the middle of the Cowboys' star, and then he proceeds to say, aren't I amazing? And does his little thing there to celebrate. Baker Owens, also there pictured, planted an Oklahoma flag in the middle of the Ohio State field after Oklahoma beat Ohio. Is that what it means to be a good winner? And of course, recently, various football dances have become popular with young kids learning how to do them. Justin Jefferson started the gritty, the floss is another one, the dabbing, and we could go on and on. And you've seen this if you've watched any kind of ball at all. When they make it into the end zone, when they do something amazing, they have to do their whole little dance. Make sure the world knows. Sometimes they just stand there, drop the ball. I'm the one that did this amazing thing that you just witnessed. Mercy. So I come back to my question. What does it mean to be a good winner? Maybe we could phrase it a different way. What does it mean to walk in victory? We are continuing our series, David, a man after God's own heart. And last time we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 17, perhaps the most well-known piece of the story of David. And when we ended last time, when we were together, David had just accomplished an incredible thing, a remarkable achievement, a young man not yet 20 years old, who had never worn the uniform of the Israeli army, never once suited up for battle, never once known 
what it was to carry a sword, runs out onto the battlefield, faced a giant. Spirit prophecy says he was 12 feet tall and killed him with one throw of his sling. And as a result, David gained instant popularity. A national hero, we could say. An overnight celebrity. Friends, few people could take all that in stride. But David did. He knew how to live with success without having it affect him. And it's rare a person who can do that, especially at such a young age. And so in 1 Samuel 18, we start to see the effects of what has taken place. And it's an interesting drama that begins to unfold. And so today, the next piece that we are looking at, it's in 1 Samuel. I hope you brought your Bibles. It begins in chapter 18. But I've entitled it, The Aftermath of a Giant Killing. The Aftermath of a Giant Killing. And so in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, we see several things that begin to happen. Many of them are intertwined, and so we will begin in verse 2, if you're with me. Chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, in verse 2, there we read, Saul took him, that's David that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. That's a bit of a switch for David. That's what he was used to. That's what he liked. That's what was comfortable. But Saul says, no, you're not going home. You're staying right here. This is where you belong. You're not to go home. And if you let your eyes drop down to verse 5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him. But let's pause right there. Here is the champion of champions, the slayer of the giant, the one who saved Israel. And here it is recorded that David went wherever Saul sent. Saul, who had recently proven himself to be the cowardice against the Philistine. It had not been for this courageous, or had it not been for this courageous young man who went out to face him, this lad, if you will, it's very probable that Saul himself would have died. It's very probable also to think that perhaps David could come parading into town. Yeah, 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 that was me. Come on, come on, let's hear it, let's hear it. But that's not what we see of David. And as Saul tries to continue to be the one in charge, to be the king, to have the authority, to have all of the, the, the trust of the people, things are starting to shift. But notice that David went wherever Saul sent. David acts in loyal submission to his king. So before we go any further, I don't want us to miss that. Because that can be hard to do. To submit to those in authority. You're at your workplace. Your boss, perhaps, is not being rational. In fact, he or she is perhaps being very irrational. You clearly know what needs to happen, but it's not your place. You want to speak up. You want to go around them. You want to make something happen. But rather than do that, we see David submitting to authority, the authority of the king that God has put in place. And so ultimately, walking in victory, here we see, means to submit to God's timing. 
David knows that something else is coming, and it'd be easy to think, this is it. The momentum is here. Everything has built for this moment. Let's seize the day. But no, David is patient. David is cool-headed, and he's going to submit to the timing of God. He's going to submit to the authority of Saul, and so David went wherever Saul sent. As we continue on in our story, we see another piece intertwined here. We're going to go back and pick up verse 1. It says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We have no real idea that there's any meeting before this time in Scripture. But somehow there is this coming together of Jonathan and David, and they hit it off right from the start. And it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We could say interwoven. It was bound. We might say he was a kindred spirit too. And why would that be? Well, David and Jonathan really had quite a lot in common. They were both courageous and capable young warriors who possessed profound faith in the Lord, unlike Saul, who had departed from the Lord. Both had initiated faith-motivated attacks against the military superior Philistines. Both had gained great victories for Israel. And in, that, in fact, in chapters 13 and 14, we see Samuel, sorry, of, of Sam, first Samuel, we see Jonathan having signal victories against the Philistines. David, of course, in chapter 17. And so there is much that they have in common with one another. And perhaps as they talk about the future of Israel, of the God that they're serving, of the God that they love, their hearts are knit together. They become kindred spirits. That's a beautiful thing when that happens. Have you ever had something like that happen? We talk to many people, but sometimes there's somebody that comes across your path and you just hit it off. And they say, yes, I feel the same way. Yes, I have that same fear myself. Yes, I was wondering also. And you get into deep theological discussions and what the Bible has to say, and you encourage one another, and it's just incredible. It's a gift. And this is what David is given here, and Jonathan both. And then skipping down to verse 3, it says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. What is Jonathan doing here? What is this covenant all about? Well, really, it's a covenant of united bro brotherhood, if you will, or united as brethren. And why is Jonathan giving him these things? Well, let me ask you this simple question. Who is the natural heir to Saul's throne? Jonathan. Thus, who should fear the threat of David perhaps as much as anyone else? Jonathan. But instead of being at odds, they make this covenant to be united as brothers, as best friends. In fact, this commentary here says this, the fact that Jonathan gave David the garb and armaments originally reserved for the heir to Saul's throne clearly possesses symbolic and thematic significance. 
Here is the robe of the one that is going to be the next heir, the, the, the next king of Israel. I'm going to give it to you, David. I'm going to also give you my armor, my sword, my bow, my belt. I want you to have these things. Think about that. Here, Jonathan is willing to sacrifice the throne for his brother David. He sees God's hand upon David. And rather than selfishly resist, he humbles himself to God's plan. Think about that. In the light of the times in which we live, when everybody wants to stand up for their rights, did Jonathan have rights? Could he have made a case? But he humbly submits. He says, you know, I see God's hand working in a different way here. I see God doing something here. I see God's hand upon you, David. And I'm not going to be in opposition to you. I'm going to be in your corner. We're brothers. We're together in this. As this relationship continues to develop in chapter 19, we see Jonathan speaking well of David and sticking up for David to his father. Later in chapter 20, we see Jonathan say, whatever you say, I will do it for you, David. Just tell me. And David ends up weeping and confiding in Jonathan. That's part of the gift of a close friend. You can be yourself. You can be open. You can be vulnerable. How many people can you weep in front of? We see another time in chapter 23. Jonathan travels to Horish simply for no other reason but to encourage David in the Lord. Do you have friends? that will travel a great distance to encourage you? Maybe it's not even with the words so much as, I just want you to know I'm here. Just them knocking on the front door and you say, wow, what are you doing here? I just want you to know you're not alone. I'm here for you. What can I do? That's this beautiful friendship, this brotherhood between David and Jonathan. And right here out of the get-go, they've just met according to scripture here, but very quickly Jonathan is saying, look, we're not at odds here. I know there's reason that we could be, but I don't want to be at odds. I'm going to give my robe, my heir, if you will. I'm going to pass it over to you. Let's not, let's not worry about those things. Now, I think it's shameful that some have tarnished this beautiful friendship by trying to claim that the friendship between David and Jonathan promises some kind of a biblical basis for homosexuality. No, that's not at all what this was. It was a wholesome, God-honoring relationship that God used in the lives of both of these young men, as well as the future lives of their families and for all of Israel. Patriarchs and Prophets 649 says this, The friendship of Jonathan for David was also of God's providence to preserve the life of the future ruler of Israel. In all these things, God was working out his gracious purposes, both for David and for the people of Israel. God has a plan in this. He says, David's going to need this support. He's going to need someone that's going to help protect his very life. And so I'm going to send Jonathan, and Jonathan's going to come alongside. Jonathan's going to be there to encourage. Jonathan's going to be there to just listen while he weeps. And so when it comes to walking in victory, yes, submit to God's timing. But secondly, humble yourself to God's plan. Jonathan was humble to God's plan. And we not only see this in Jonathan, but we see it in David as well. But there's a third point that we're probably going to spend the most time on this morning in walking in victory, and that is pledge to do only what pleases God. That might sound overly simplistic, 
but it's not. It's really at the heart of true conversion, is it not? When you decide at that point in your life, I've heard doctors say, you know, I was going through the medical school and all this, and then I came to a point where I decided anything that I learned from the Bible, from the spirit of prophecy that's good for my health, if it's good for me, I want to do it. Friends, that's called conversion. To say, I want to pledge to do only what pleases God, and if it doesn't please God, I don't want anything to do with it. I want to leave it alone. And that's really what we see at the heart of walking in victory for David is his simple pledge that I'm going to only do what pleases God, and that's it. Let's pick up this story. Verse 5, we read the first half, but let's continue on here. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. You know, it says some four times in this chapter that David behaved wisely. Verse 5, 14, 15, and 30. Four times, in case you miss it. We don't want you to miss it. That's the point. So four times we're going to say, David behaved wisely. Also in this chapter, it says three times, the Lord was with David. Verse 12, 14, and 28. The Lord was with David. And so in this verse we just read, verse 5, it says, David behaved wisely. Your translation may say something different. The NAS says, and prospered. The NRSV says, was successful. The reality is the term translated, cause to prosper, prosper, do successfully, is a form of sakal. It's really all of these things put into one word. Behave wisely, to prosper, to be successful, and it has theological significance. According to the Torah, those who keep the words of Sinai covenant would prosper in anything they did. Same word, same root, sakal. Look at this next slide. Deuteronomy 29, verses 1, and then verse 9. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses. That's verse 1, then verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may, what's the word? Prosper in all that you do. So here in 1 Samuel, the idea is if you want to prosper and if you want to behave wisely, do all the things according to the covenant. Do everything God commands you to do. Do everything in light of honoring him and you will prosper. It's not here explicitly in the verse, but we could find other verses that are exactly the opposite of that, couldn't we? Do your own thing, go your own way, and you won't prosper. Here's another verse from the Torah using the same root. Be strong and very courageous. Have we heard this verse before? That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may what? Prosper wherever you go. So here couched in Samuel four different times this word behave wisely, sakal that he may prosper, that he may be successful, is this idea that David is incorporating all of these things, that all I want to do is please the Lord. All I want to do is follow his commandments. All I want to do is to submit to his way. That's all I want to do. Don't you want to be king? Only if God wants me to be king. Don't you want to be king now? Only when it's his time for me to be king. Don't you want to have all power and authority? Only if that's what God wants me to be and do. Friends, the bottom line with prosperity 
is submission to God. Submission to his laws. To not go to the right hand or to the left hand. To not say, well, what do I want to do? No, God, what do you want to do? And when we do that, prosperity. Oh, pastor, this sounds like the prosperity gospel. Well, it is. You follow God, you'll prosper. Well, I haven't seen everybody that followed God prosper. I know a lot of God-fearing people that had bad things happen to them. It's true. But let's be real about this. If you or I suffer for 80, 90, 100 years, all of them, we just suffer all the way through. And then God blesses us with billions and billions and trillions and trillions of years of life for eternity with him in heaven. Who's suffering? Heaven is cheap enough. This is the prosperity gospel. And without God, there's no prosperity. There's no hope of eternal life. There's no future. There's no victory. There's no forgiveness of sins. Does this mean your life's going to be perfect from here forward? Let me ask you this question. Was it perfect for David from this day forward? Hardly. We'll look at a few challenges here before we're done today, but we're only getting started when it comes to challenges for David. Next time we talk about this, we're going to see the whole scaffolding he's been building his life on get kicked out from under him. One by one by one by one. Hardly prosperity. Or is it? Or is it? When God is on your side, what do you have to fear, friends? What does the verse say? What can man do to me? There's truth in those words. The problem is we want the prosperity now. Our way, my way, this way, that way. That's how I want prosperity. Here's a prescription. You fill it. God says, my prosperity is much different. But I promise you, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. So he's pledged to do only what God, what pleases God, to obey God, to honor God, to submit to God, to live in reference to God. And as a result, we see over and over again that David, in this chapter, prospers. And here's the irony of the chapter. We have two main individuals, David and Saul, and Saul is doing everything, everything, everything he knows to do to prosper and promote self. And David is doing everything, four times we hear it, everything he knows to do to follow God to behave wisely, to submit to God and his plans, his purposes, his law, ultimately whatever pleases God. And he prospers and is driving Saul nuts because every time he tries to do something to catch David, it does the opposite. And if you haven't noticed, Saul's whole frame of reference is exactly, well, the opposite of David's. He seeks only to obey himself to honor himself, to submit to nobody but himself, to live in reference to himself. And as a result, we see over and over again that Saul only becomes more jealous and unhappy and more afraid. And this contrast is throughout the remainder of the chapter. Look with me the last part of verse 5. Well, we'll just read the whole thing. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war. Why would he set him over the men of war? Well, it could be a couple of reasons. One, because the people are demanding it. But maybe, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Go out there to the front lines. Let's see if they'll knock you down. That'll do me a favor. But it doesn't work. 
And then there's this piece too, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that's Goliath, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with joy, with musical instruments. Verse 7, so the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And verse 8, then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. This idea of very angry, it's to burn with anger. But then now notice, notice this next line. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? The kingdom? Saul, why are you thinking about the kingdom? Why are you feeling so threatened about the kingdom? Well, we go back a few chapters. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Samuel 15, 28. So Samuel said to him, this is when Saul refused to kill, to kill King Agag and to follow explicitly the Lord's commands. So Samuel said to him, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That would haunt you, wouldn't it, as a king? The Lord has torn the kingdom from me and he's given it to a neighbor all night long now he's ruminating over this for years perhaps who is this person that is going to take the kingdom from me and now in this verse verse 8 now what more can he have but the kingdom he is thinking ah this is the one that samuel spoke of this is the threat and he's come to take it from me Verse 9, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. Your translation might say Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The Hebrew word carries with it the intent that he watched David with an intent to bring him harm. And that's what we see for the rest of the chapter. Bring David harm. How can we trip him up? How can we eliminate him? Verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the side, inside the house. Now this distressing spirit is really not from God, uh, but anyway, we won't get into that too much. This prophesying is really where he is in an ecstatic frenzy. Uh, he's not making a lot of sense. And so David played music, it continues, with his hand and at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. You know this part of the story. And Saul, being overcome with burning anger at David, at what he's done, at the opinion of the people, when David is not paying attention, cast the spear. For he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escapes. Do you know what also gets me about this verse? What's the last word of the verse? Twice. Throw a spear at me once, shame on you. Throw a spear at me twice, shame on me. Right? How does this happen twice? Is David still submitting to the king? Is David still seeking to calm the king with his music? Spirit of Prophecy tells us that David was preserved by the intervention of God. But he continues to faithfully serve, to just play his music. And the contrast only deepens. Verse 12, it says, now Saul was afraid of David. Now, how does that make sense? Saul is the one that's afraid. David's the one that had spears thrown at him twice. Why is Saul afraid? We have to keep reading. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
Saul keeps taking matters into his own hands, and it's not helping him. David keeps trusting in God, and he prospers. Every attempt to live for himself is backfiring, while inversely, every attempt to live for God is causing David to be elevated. Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, hoping again, let's let the enemies annihilate him. Verse 14, and David behaved wisely, same expression, in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, again, this idea, Saul was afraid. He was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. We can continue on in these verses, but I'll just summarize for you. David kills the giant. He's supposed to get Saul's firstborn daughter, or oldest daughter, we should say. But it tells us in these verses, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles, and then I'll give her to you. Go fight some more. Maybe it will prove to be your ruin, and then I'll give you what I've already promised. You let your eye drop down further, and it doesn't go, she doesn't go to David. He marries her off to somebody else, not following through on his word. Does David make a stink? He does not. Continue further, verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And so Saul's thinking, verse 21, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so there's this back and forth and a dowry and, and I'm, I, you know, you're a king. I'm just a peasant of a, a person. And he says, I know if you'll just slay a hundred Philistines, then you can have my daughter. What's the hope here? Oh, didn't make it, David. Too bad. With any battle, by the way, just like similar in sports, you are the team until you are what? Defeated. If I can get David to slip even one time, to lose this battle, to lose over here, to become injured, to become killed, all of a sudden this person that was superhuman is, well, isn't it a shame? And we can move on and we can turn the page, go back to life as we prefer it. But does it work? He says, give me evidence of 100 Philistine deaths, and David comes back with evidence of 200 Philistine deaths deaths. Wow. And so Saul has no choice. He gives Michael his daughter as a wife. Verse 28, then Saul saw and knew. He didn't just see it. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Every effort, like a boomerang, comes back and hits him in the face. Every effort to serve self. Is it that different with you and me? We're not selfish, are we? Who are we kidding? We can be incredibly selfish. We work angles to show other people how selfish we aren't, best because we want to hide how selfish we are. And we try to connive and manipulate situations in our favor. What, me? I never do that. You, you never do that. But it always comes back to bite. What would happen if we just let God be God? What would happen if we just proposed to do nothing that offends our God and to let him direct the timing, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen? What if we just let God be God in whatever situation you're facing? 
Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it has to do with your young children, your adult children. Maybe it's your employer. Maybe it's, maybe, you know, infinite. It can just go on forever. But what if we just let God be God? What if we just behaved wisely? What if we just followed the law of God? Too often we're like this quote here, Patriarchs and Prophets 649. One great defect in the character of Saul. You know, the devil only needs one great defect, doesn't he? We have counsel on that too. If there's one great defect, he can make his way in and through that just, well, cause problems for the whole lump. One great defect in the character of Saul, his desire for praise and self-exaltation. Come on, somebody talk about me some more. Somebody give me another compliment. Somebody tell me I did a good job. And his standard of right and wrong was the low standard of popular applause. And in this, no man, no woman is safe who lives that he or she may please men and women and does not seek first for the approbation, that is the praise of God. And I imagine here somebody's worn out trying to live up to all the expectations, all the dozen, if not hundreds of expectations of other people to try to get that popular applause. And you're worn out. The good news is you don't have to be worn out. You just have to live for an audience of one. The praise of God. And that's it. Let the chips fall where they may. What would that look like in our society, in our culture? Not to mention in politics. If people just did the right thing and didn't worry about, well, what, how is this going to impact my, my voting and my constituents and this and that and all the other things? No, what if you just did the right thing and left it up to God? Left the timing up to God? Be in humility, say, God, I'm just here to be used. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You need victory in your life? Surrender to God. The victory might look different, but you'll be far better off. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe there's a Saul biting on your heels. People going back on their word. Those that have a jealous eye on you, and they are seeking nothing but to harm you, seeking to sabotage you and your reputation. If so... Do like David did. I don't see a line in this chapter where David is fretting or stressing or beside himself. Did you read a verse where he's having a panic attack? He's trusting in the Lord. His life is in God's hands. Lord, are you sure I should play harp for this crazy person? Okay, here I go. Whatever my hand finds to do. If this is where you want to use me, playing harp for this guy, this is what I'm here to do. But ultimately... The victory is not in the score of the game. The victory is not in the money that is earned. The victory is not the job that is attained. The victory is not, no, the victory is in faithfulness to God. The victory is in Jesus. And the good news this morning is nobody has to be a loser. Our ultimate victory is secure, not in yourself, not in myself. It's secure in Jesus Christ. Today, by faith, we can walk in that victory. Amen. And how do we do that? Well, we pick up a few of the things we learned this morning. We submit to God's timing. We live in a fast-serve society. We want it now. But no, we just submit to God's timing. We don't worry about it. Everybody else is getting ahead, and I keep getting behind. Don't worry about it. 
Submit to God's timing. Humble yourself to God's plan. Maybe it's not God's plan for you to be the wealthy person that can write the big check. Okay. And at the core, it's to simply pledge to do only what pleases God. God, I'm going to need your help with this. I'm going to need you to show me what your way is. I'm going to need to spend some time, some more serious time in your word so I know what will please you, what will honor you, what's the path you'd have me to take. How do you want to change my schedule today? But if I pledge you only what pleases God, there's a lot of things I don't have to stress about anymore. What does it mean to walk the path of victory? It means to walk with Jesus. What it means to walk with Jesus. If you'd like to walk with Jesus this morning, there's nothing else that he'd like more than that as well. And he wants to invite you, yes. David is not so much a superhero, he is a young lad dependent on God. That's what it is. You say, I can never be a David. Is anything too hard for God? I can never stay calm like he stayed calm. Through Christ, we can do all things. He's the one that will give you strength. I don't know if I could ever have peace. Friends, then take God's peace. My peace I give unto you, he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to cobble together and fix your peace. Your peace is in pieces. That's why I'm going to give you mine. So if you want to be victorious, be victorious in the Lord. The only true victory is in Christ. The only true prosperity is is in Christ. The only true joy is in Christ. Your salvation is only in Christ. Everything is in Christ. And so don't leave it on the field. Claim your victory. Let's sing. I pray that each of us has seen this morning perhaps many different things, but the one that seems to come through loud and clear is that when we take matters into our own hands, we become more and more frustrated and angry and fearful. But when we allow you to be God and choose to do nothing that will displease you, then we can prosper. And that's not to say that everything goes perfectly for David, even in today's peace, it didn't. But victory is not so much what we have, it's who has us. So Lord, we give you our hearts today. Bring about the victories in our lives that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.